From Koningstein Road in the east to Cetus Gap in the west, an orange curtain has descended across the Ojai Valley. This is Ojai Talk of the Town. Hey everyone, Brett Bradigan, editor of your Ojai Magazines, The Monthly and Quarterly. This episode, our guests are the co-executive directors of Boyle Springs Farms, and that is Alex Primo and Ashwin Monty Pagada. And we talk about all the fascinating projects they got going on this 450-acre farm just over the hill in the Kiama Valley. And I hope you enjoy. Stick around. There's uh, a lot to, a lot of ground to cover. Alex Ashwin, thanks for joining me. Thank you. Thank you. So we were just talking about Quail Springs and the recent weather phenomenon, which has greatly impacted your operation, which is how far from Ojai exactly? Well, if the 33 were open, which it's not right now, yeah. uh, it's a, an hour and a half drive. So on the windy roads there, miles. it's maybe 50 miles or mm-hmm. so. Yeah. So 33 is closed in several places, right? By Wheeler Campground or just up from there by the tunnel. Mm-hmm. Anywhere else? Are they still clearing out all those split places? I'm not sure. Um, I know that from our from Quail Springs, heading south on the 33, the road is closed at Pine Mountain. So both ends. Mm-hmm. And all the trails, the uh, Forest Watch has an app now that you can check the trails, and all of those trails are closed between Pine yeah. Mountain and Wheeler Gorge. Well, I know. I volunteer with the Land Conservancy on weekends to do trail work, and it just feels Sisyphean. Through, you know, recutting the switchbacks and, and then, uh, next week storm will just blow it out and back to it. Mm -hmm. But it has been interesting because I know one of your big projects there is capturing the water. And I'm just wondering with all this water this year, how did that, how is that affecting your groundwater and your recapture groundwater recharge systems? Mm How is that? Well, it's definitely, I, I think I read a statistic that, I think I read a statistic that um, on average uh, in Kuyama Valley, in the past couple of years, we've received less than five inches of rain, yeah. um, 2021, 2022. And this year, uh, we're upwards close to 60. So it was, it, it was a, a huge uh, shift in what is usually expected in the Kuyama Valley, in the high desert region. So a big part of our practice has been to find ways historically to capture and slow down the water that, the little water that we get. So when you get huge weather phenomenons like this, um, you do really actually see the effects of the 20 years of work we've done. Yeah, it's more spongy. Exactly, Mm -hmm. exactly. The water is... It's not just washing out arroyos and dry gullies and such. Exactly. Exactly. And the erosion. Yeah, I know. It's, uh, what was the main use of that land before? Was it just an open range grazing? It had been used as grazing, grazing land for 70 to 80 years, and the cattle had taken down every last bit of grazable, grazable, um, uh, flora. Yeah. And including a lot of the cottonwoods. And I think, um, recently Brenton, who is our, Brenton Kelly, who is our watershed and advocacy director, mentioned that when he started at Quail Springs, there was a, a dozen maybe cottonwoods in that 
in that gully, and uh, now there are thousands. Um, and this is all naturally propagating, or has he been planting? Uh, we've been a combination of the two. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And well, do you want to tell us just a little bit of kind of the big picture of Quail Springs and the permaculture project? Sure. Sure. So Quail Springs has existed since 2004, and it was founded by um, several people, uh, first as a project of Wilderness Youth Project, um, coming up from Santa Barbara, bringing youth out to do um, nature-based play and learning projects. And it's become many things over time, um, but I'll speak to what we are now, which is um, a land-based nonprofit and a live-work community. Um, because of our remote location, many of our staff live on site and live in, in small houses on the property. And we, we do a variety of things as a nonprofit. Um, we teach environmental education. Yeah, I know. When Ashwin talked to our Rotary, that was a big portion. Definitely caught people's mm-hmm. interest. They mm-hmm. like that education portion. Yeah, for, for people who have known about Quail Springs for a long time, it was a big shift to go from hosting on-site programs to online information. And it is a big change, but it's actually interestingly effective because natural building is something that's really hands-on. People usually go somewhere to learn it. But to be able to yeah. learn the basics on over, on the Internet is mm-hmm. unusual but also doable. So we've had people internationally. Do you have a YouTube channel? We do have a YouTube channel. Okay, mm-hmm. I'll post up a link. Oh, great. And what, uh, what other uh, missions do you have? Besides the education, mm-hmm. well, um, we we engage in a lot of advocacy work. So there's two branches of the advocacy um, directions: natural building and our water advocacy work, which we'll talk quite a bit about today. And um, we also do a lot of work with community outreach in the Kuyama Valley, which hence, is hence why you're here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, so many people don't know where the Kuyama Valley is. So I could yeah. give a little... Well, we think of, what is it, once you get over the Sespe Ridge, then you're in Lockwood Valley. Right. Uh-huh. And then Kiama Valley is over mm-hmm. over the next ridge from there. It's further... Well, further Lockwood east. Valley sort of shoots off from the 33 um, to the east. And then if you continue on the 33, um, you get into... It opens up into um, alfalfa fields and then badlands. And the Kuyama Valley starts there and then continues up, continue on the 33, and then the 166 goes uh, east to west. And it continues just slightly to the east and quite extensively to the west. And you can imagine yeah, it's, it's... Santa Maria. It's, yeah, it's a big swath of land, and it's surrounded by Los Padres National Forest. It's about 300 mi- square miles, and only 1,100 people registered living there. So it's a very rural, yeah. rural high desert environment. And it has good water, though. Isn't that part of its attraction? The pistachio farms and there are, well, you mentioned alfalfa. That's a very um, water-intensive crop. I grew up on a farm. I know I've thrown probably several hundred thousand bales of alfalfa hay. Well, it's a, there's, there's groundwater that's being used for farming, but it's, um, so we're actually quite a unique valley. Uh, in California, because we are working only with groundwater and not surface water, and yeah. those the the groundwater situation is complicated enough with just those details. Um, but there's there's quite a bit of farming happening in the Cuyama Valley, and um, four times more water being drawn than what is being replenished in in the oh, groundwater. Oh, is that the ratio? Mm-hmm. So we're looking at less than twenty years until it's 
just the whole depleted. aquifer is depleted. Yeah. And are, water. Are you seeing how, how the wells, how deep are they having to go like right now? I'm not sure I can speak to that accurately. Yeah. But deep. I mean, it's, uh, you got to get down there, huh? But you look at like Palm Springs or the Coachella Valley and Palm Desert and those areas that just have this enormous glacial remnant mm-hmm. of lake of this beautiful water mm. in the desert and it's hundreds of golf courses that they're dragging this mm. water that's tens of thousands of years old beautiful glacial water and it's creating its own ecosystem now because mm. of all the humidity that doesn't belong in the desert it's very interesting it is very interesting how groundwater is becoming like the next you know fossil fuel deposits mm. mm-hmm. Yes. I think the water that's being drawn um, in the Kuyama Valley now is about 30,000 years old. Oh, is it? Wow. That's nice to know. It's good water, too, I've heard. It's, it's like, it's yeah. delicious. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. We still um, take bottles. Thinking. We go up there and fill up our water bottles and bring them home. because. Of yeah. The is there a, um artesian spring or any kind of surface springs? I know you guys are built around springs, mm-hmm. coil mm-hmm. springs. Yeah. And the water is just like ready to go. Right from the spring. Well, we use that water um, for for the garden, irrigating the garden, and yeah. then um, to bring water to the goats. And uh, further down the driveway, there's um, some water tanks for the sheep from when Kuyama lamb uh, were on the land. And then we have a well that's for our drinking water, which is also okay. delicious. So you're water. not drinking from directly from the spring. Mm-hmm. But you could. I mean, it doesn't have a chance to get uh, Giardia and so forth in it by... From the wellhead, well, I a, just it's a just, seep more than a yeah a real seep spring. more than a spring yeah. yeah, so it's not coming out under any pressure like right no. mm-hmm. yeah. best to best to boil it and filter it yeah. still mm-hmm. yeah well it's interesting to me because it looks so arid there it's yeah. hard to imagine that there's well, any surface water whatsoever mm-hmm. well I I remember uh, I started at Quell Springs as a work trader and I was there. March 1st of 2021, it was my first time living so rurally. And a couple of months in, I had just been taking the goats out on these long walks uh, through the desert. And this that was my awareness of the space. And then a couple of months in, Brenton took uh, the work traders and a few staff out on a watershed hike to understand the, qua- the, qu- the basin. The, yeah, the basin, the larger basin, and also quail springs, yeah. our source of water. And I just remember feeling uh, like I I had entered another dimension. It, it, it you know you go from desert into a thriving riparian zone with which didn't used to be there. You said exactly, mm-hmm. yeah. exactly. Twenty years ago, it wasn't there. So to go from and then of course beyond that, then there's these uh, fascinating slot canyons with sand falls, and I mean it, it was just a magnificent experience. Yeah. But just the experience of of water that I could walk through and wade through uh, right there in the mm-hmm. desert is, and that wasn't there 20 years ago is, is a testament to that yeah. conservation work. I know when I was in Southeast Arizona, holistic range management was all the rage just back in the like eighties and nineties. Are you guys familiar with mm-hmm. Alan Savory and, yes. and the uh, herding uh, culture mm-hmm. or the herding, you know, just real quick, it was, and you jump in there if I'm getting it wrong, but he was a game warden and either 
Zimbabwe or South Africa who noticed that the wildebeest herds were getting chased around by the apex predators, the lions and such. And that by doing so, they kept in tight groups that would move around frequently. So areas would get heavily grazed every like three or four days. And then their wastes would fertilize the soil, which, um, the water would penetrate more deeply because of their, because they're so close packed in their hooves would, you know, create the divots and dents and the little water would pool in. And so he extrapolated that out to other areas where there were no apex predators, even when there were herds of ungulates like the wildebeest. And those places were just dry and barren. Mm-hmm. So he figured out that it was the predators that were keeping the animals on the move. And is that sort of the philosophy of uh, the sheep and goats that you heard, is to keep moving around intensively grazing areas for short periods of time? Well, the goats, um, we have a small enough herd that they don't, they do have an effect on the land, but not a huge effect on... Yeah, because goats will eat anything, right? They're not... um, so so they say, but they... Yeah, they're starting they, to get they, fussy. They, yeah. I've brought them uh, apple core many times, and everybody yeah. sniffs it, and, and like, nobody apple wants core. it. <laughs> it's um, like that, you heard that joke about the guy who's talking to another guy who's like, yeah, my dog's a vegetarian. And the other guy's like, yeah, I tried to get mine to eat vegetables, and he wouldn't. And then the other guy goes, neither would mine for the first two weeks. <laughs> eventually eventually they'll eat those apple cores Uh Mm -hmm. yeah but the goats um so there have in in the past there have been times where fencing has been used um but at the moment we're not doing that we're just taking them out and um the nrcs came out and they assessed what we're doing national what uh national resource conservation Conservation service yeah and um, is this like a certification program you guys were looking into or just out of curiosity or i know we had a grant from them oh okay nice install a pipeline Mm -hmm. we've had two so installing a water pipeline and um and also a grazing contract so that was that was also when kuyama lamb was grazing the land quite a bit because they they got started at quail springs and so when when the NRCS came out for the grazing contract, they took a look mm-hmm. at the the um, effect that the goats are having on the land, and it can't. It isn't necessarily. Um, it sort of balances out on beneficial or detrimental because they're they're urinating and defecating on the land, um, and they're eating they're eating of the land, but they continue moving, so they're not yeah. really doing damage. But um, it's also the. Because of the dry desert environment, it's sort of over time, um, those elements will break down, but it's not happening at the fastest rate. No, it is brittle and fragile. But it's a very gratifying process to just watch them, to watch them be choosing from what they want and mm-hmm. different times of the year when, when plants are, various plants are thriving. Like the goats medicinally choose what's best for them and yeah. know where they want to go and have very clear directives of, what they want to be eating and when, and then when it's time to go home. And then transforming that into, the, you know, the life force of Quail Springs, which is the milk, I feel. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, yeah. The fat of the land. The fat, the of, fat the land. of the land. It's yeah. delicious. And and to taste that, that change seasonally. Mm-hmm. I mean, oh, yeah, really? It's yeah, that much terroir and goat milk? Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> it really is. I have a friend who can taste uh, the, the differences between a, a different breeds of goats. Yeah, I I believe that. It's just, you know, spring milk versus fall milk and 
the what nuttiness about? of acorns. Yes. Oh, yeah, mm-hmm. I guess that's true. Some little, a, little, a little summer taste is, yeah. Do you guys make bit. cheese? If we have, um, the amount of milk fluctuates depending on how many milking does yeah. we have, but when there's enough milk, we make um, paneer, chev, um, Jan Smith, who's lived on the land for a long time, went on a, a cheddar kick during <laughs> mm. COVID and set up a cheese fridge and started making some cheddars. They were incredible. And um, some mozzarella. What else have we made? Someone, Burrata. Someone made a halloumi ones, which was oh, so right. good. Oh, right. That was yeah. delicious. That was so good. I love the just the smell of grilled halloumi. Yes, yeah, it's delightful. Especially when you pair it with a watermelon and mint leaves. Mm. My God, that's Coming like a soon. Mediterranean. Yeah. Uh, near us. <laughs> I guess it's like a mid-eastern. Um, what do they call it? caprese salad? Mm-hmm. So good. So, what else is going on out there? I mean, what's the size of your herd? The human one or the goat one? Well, let's talk about both. But the goat. <laughs> we, I think, we're at fourteen goats now, and there's um, six pregnant does. That will be giving birth wow. um, in the coming weeks. So have a big goats can have increase. from one to four kids, yeah. so there could be a, quite a boom happening soon. So that's a good good sign of the fertility then that mm. you're hurt as well yes. tended. They're very healthy and they're very well suited to the environment. So yeah. longer legs, mm. they can do they can walk through the brush and their udders are high, so they don't yeah. have to scrape get, along. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and how many people are there? I mean, I guess it varies, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we vary between about 14 and 20. Okay. So 20 and this is, is like about the, the willing max. workers of the, of the w- farm or w- well woofs? Willing mm-hmm. worker. Well, it started as willing workers on organic farms and now it's, no, it started as worldwide opportunities on organic farms. Yeah, um, that's the well woofing. Woofing. Yeah. Um, we, so the 15, the 14 to 20 people are a variety. It's, it's staff. It's community members, and then it's uh, farm interns, or what we call work traders. Yeah. And that is, the amount of work traders varies between sort of three and five, and they come for three to six months at a time. How did they find you? They they do find us on the Wolf website. Um, the Instagram oh, so is a big... like a couchsurfing app or something for well, Wolfs? I don't know. Wolf has a, Wolf has a really extensive website. Um, yeah. Each country mm-hmm. has its own branch, mm-hmm. and... Yeah. You can That's, you can read about different destinations to go to. Yeah, there's a, a few places around here, as you might imagine, mm-hmm. that, that were, has willing workers. Yeah, that's how I got started on this journey, too. Uh, summer in Germany at an organic farm that I found out through Wolfing. Ah. Yeah. Well, they're a German yeah. organization. Mm-hmm. Well, I was an unwilling worker. <laughs> <laughs> Where did you a loafer? Um, where, where? A loafer. Uh, Western New York and the oh. northern part of the Allegheny Mountains. Not far from Buffalo would be mm. like our city. 50, 60 miles from well, what Buffalo. City? What city? Dunkirk, Fredonia yeah. is like the nearest cities. I was yeah. in Forestville, which is population 600. Okay. But it's very – the dairy cattle there or the dairy – the Guernseys and the Jerseys are just incredibly um, productive. Mm. The – Butterfat is like between uh, eight and ten percent. Wow. It's more than double of a typical range. They say it's the—I've heard it said—it's the richest butterfat in the world, except for the Isle of Man, the Isle of Jersey, the Isle of Lucy, some of those places oh. in the Channel Islands. 
the other Channel Islands. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but the amount of work that goes into that and those just mm-hmm. winters were just brutal yeah. onslaught. Those are hard winters. Yeah. I, I lived that, up in that area for six years. Oh, yeah? Where exactly? Um, I taught at a school in Geneva, New York. Okay. And Finger Lakes. Yeah, yeah. Finger Lake Lakes. Seneca Lake. But then I moved out to Rochester for four years. And, yeah. Well, the difference in climate between the Finger Lakes and Rochester and further west course, is, yeah. is very... Yeah. It's interesting. It's all mm-hmm. very, very different. Yeah. The like, lake effect. Yeah. It <laughs> is crazy. And then, Alex, you lived up there, too. Mm-hmm. But I haven't experienced the New York winters that you two have. I was in the Hudson Valley. Oh, and, uh, it's so gorgeous there. It's really. so beautiful. But when I, I, I don't think I would want to venture to uh, northwestern parts of New York because oh, it's, I, I it really is enjoy not the New York. People think of New York State and they have a certain thing in mind. That's not Western New York. Mm, it's a whole that other world. Is, oh yeah, it's like subarctic Alabama. <laughs> It is so cold and so <laughs> rednecky. Mm. It's really like it's a big state. There's a lot happening. Yeah, it is a big state, and it's so diverse. Much, much more Midwest, mm. you know, in the yeah. Great Lakes, the Great Lakes Basin. Yeah, it's an interesting, interesting. If you love to fish and hunt, like I do, it's pretty nice, pretty ah. sweet. I go back there most every year to see the bills and uh-huh. do some steelhead fishing and get out on the lake for some perch mm. in the summer. Um, summer and fall. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, mean, I, I was reading reports um, a couple of years ago that that region, because of the lakes, is going to be much more stable in the face of climate change. Than yeah, because regions. it's a regulated zone, a little microclimate, uh, and it'll yeah. probably just warm a little bit, which is welcome to a lot of people there. Yeah, <laughs> but otherwise, uh, it will stable, mm-hmm, much more stable. Yeah, mm-hmm. I've heard my um, little plug for Western New York. <laughs> yeah, po- po- some podcasts they were talking about the breakdown of civilization and what regions will come out on top. And the Great Lakes was near the top because of the fresh water. 20% of the planet's fresh water. Wow. And just because of what you're saying about the climate stability. So it's going to 20%. be interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's going to be very interesting how uh, things sh- shake out over the next few decades. Mm-hmm. But back to Quail, Quail Springs, the... Um, 14 to 20 of you. What is like the ultimate plan there? Just to demonstrate how, you know, the land can heal and recover mm-hmm. education elements of all that. Like what, how would you imagine this place in say five or 10 years? Mm. Well, <clears throat> I mean, we actually just, so it's important to note that Quail Springs is an organization. So it has about 11 staff members and a few yeah. offsite staff members. Um, and then it's a, uh, it's also a community. And I'd say the organizational wish, which is tied to the communi- community's wish, is to, in, in our dream scenario, right, yeah. we're talking dream scenario, is all our work is, is recognized by agencies, by donors, by foundations, uh, in the work of conservation and outreach, specifically in the Kuyama Valley, because it's a, it's, 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 Kuyama Valley is, is uh, a valley that is touched uh, by four different counties, Kern County, uh, San Luis Obispo County, Ventura County, and Santa Santa Barbara Barbara County. County. And yet it's possibly one of the most underserved regions in all of Southern California. And so 
we we work really closely with our neighbors and we recognize a lot of need um, it, and we've been asked to help in terms of um, establishing community gardens uh, uh, helping out with gray water systems and installation yeah. of gray water systems so our goal and we've been moving inching closer to this goal especially this year we've had some successes with grants uh, and we're in the process of um, writing another one that would hopefully set us up for a number of years with giving us the financial support to focus our attention on the needs of our immediate neighbors and not just the human ones, but uh, also the non-human neighbors, the plants and the animals. Um, because as much as we love the world of online programming and a lot of the extensive outreach we're doing, there's a lot of, a lot of importance that um, we place upon being a place-based organization and being an organization that um, slows time down in our experience of more localized work. Okay. More deep time and community. Yes, yes. Yeah. And for the community, um, I would almost refer to the experience as a sort of an experimental settlement. There's, there's not necessarily... Um, a goal like a of what that – no, I definitely won't use that word. Okay. <laughs> because humans, we we do, uh, to make up a word, potentially utopiaize things, but but the the human experience of living together is very real. And yeah. for every for every solution, all, you then have to – You guys new... watch uh, What We Do in the Shadows. No. Have you seen that show? No. The, the vampire roommates. Oh, I, I've the, been we, wanting the to. The chore wheels and yeah. – Oh, yeah, chore wheels. <laughs> yes. There's so many things to figure out when you live together and yeah. when you live in a remote location and also off-grid. So I think the ultimate goal is potentially to just keep having more efficient and life-giving systems. Yeah. And that can look a lot of different ways depending on who is there, the conditions, um, and I think people – People go to Quail Springs to experience a, a different life and potentially a, a slightly slower life that could feel more connected to the land. And that seems yeah. to be an ongoing priority for those who, who live there. So um, that can manifest in many different ways, depending on yeah. on the group. And you've had some people live there for the whole span, huh? You've had yeah. some longtime residents. Um, well, Jan and Brenton... Uh, Brenton Kelly and Jan Smith came to Quail Springs. They both joined the board in 2006, I believe, and then moved in 2008. And so they've moved been living in permanently. Mm -hmm. They've been okay. living there since 2008. And then um, they're they're the they have the longest duration. Uh, none of the founding members live on site anymore, but they come through and visit occasionally. Of course, mm -hmm. stay connected. And what about the willing workers? How long do they typically stay? And have any of them decided, well, this is the place for me? Uh, mm. Well, we got two of them yeah, right here, right? Well, well no. Uh, I started as a work work trader, so six months is usually the, the typical duration, yeah. five to six months. And then um, you can always work with the community to find uh, an extended stay, either as yeah. a work trader or as one of our members, Lauren Rendler. She's our seed-saving coordinator so she started as a work trader and is now uh there figured out how to make herself valuable yeah in a year and a half now mm -hmm. been there. Mm -hmm. um and i transitioned from work trader to executive director 
I think um, the six months is essential to see through see your activities yeah, through see at least a couple seasons. Seasons, exactly. Yeah. That seasonal shift, uh, especially in the high desert, is uh, gives you an understanding of the land, gives you an understanding of the water, uh, understanding of yourself in different. Completely different yeah. environment. Well, speaking it's of which, winter and summer. Yeah, I was going to go into that <laughs> because it's been an interesting winter, especially for you guys. Where do you? Where do you? What's your city? Do you go to like Bakersfield to get supplies, or, or Santa Barbara, or Santa Maria? Um, all of the above, mm-hmm. depending on what we need. And but Bakersfield and Santa Maria are each about an hour and a half. And then, yeah, and Ohio's an hour and a half. Yeah. So it's kind of like the nexus of the triangle. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's, depending on on what you want to experience, which drive you want yeah. to take, and do you want to go to the coast or not? I don't. I'm not a Bakersfield hater. I know people mock Bakersfield, but I like food, and mm. Bakersfield has great food culture. Mm-hmm. Basque food. Yeah, really I really amazing. like Bakersfield. There's some yeah. really interesting things there. Yeah, there's great live music, mm-hmm. and the. Uh, you know, the whole best culture of just, there's no, you don't order off a menu. You just sit down and then they mm. just keep feeding you until mm. he's telling to stop. You know, the cabbage soups and the pickled tongue and that delicious Basque sheep herder's bread and those, oh, amazing. oh my God, and the lamb. Everything <laughs> was just. Wow. I need your recommendations of well, where to eat. Hotel Noriega. Mm. Okay. Yeah, they have seatings. You got to go like six o'clock or eight o'clock. I know the Sunday is the traditional one and it's picnic style. So you sit next to whoever's around. Actually, I haven't been there in like 12 years, so I shouldn't speak too authoritatively. Mm -hmm. Things have changed, but Mm. I have been to the wool growers, which is a, you know, that's more traditional. You do order off a menu there, but it's like a prefix menu. Ah. It's so good. I just really, that part of Bakersfield. Is good. Like right. Santa Barbara to me doesn't feel quite as real. There seems to be some people are insulated by their money. I mm. feel like the gate, gated mm. communities and so forth. So that's why I'm always keeping an eye on Ojai that we don't become Montecito, the Montecitoization of Ojai. How long have you lived here? Uh, 22 20, or 23 years. So yeah. it's probably changed a lot in that time? Yeah, it's interesting when you're there, when you're in the middle of it. You don't really notice too much. It feels basically the same because you're basically the same with your routines and your outlook. But since the pandemic or since the Thomas fire Mm. really changed, Mm -hmm. I feel the younger people are coming in, have more money. They don't seem to have the same. They're not small town people the way that used to be. You know, there'd be older couples who had been out in the world they pro- they grew up in the Midwest or somewhere in a much more sort of the South small town culture. So when they move to Ojai, they understand how small towns work. Mm. It usually works out that people who don't understand small towns they don't last long. They just think we're just a bunch of rubes and idiots, and then they you know pack up and move out. But a lot of them get it. You know? So it's an experiment for some, and they may yeah. not. It always has been. Mm-hmm. Oh, it has a way of sorting out people. I'm sure it's no different with you guys. Mm-hmm. People come out and it just ain't for them, huh? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think it is that people who do fit in in that arrangement, because it is it is pretty rough living compared to what a lot mm-hmm. of people are used to. 
Yeah, no plumbing asked, and so forth. Someone asked recently um, at, at an event that we were tabling at what the determining factor is that we see in people who live there. And it was an, an interesting thing to think about because a lot of different people have come through over the years. But there's a sort of resilience that's necessary to live through those kind of extreme seasonal changes and in such close quarters with other folks. Yeah. Um, and I think there's potentially a high level of engagement that's necessary. Engagement in what way? Um, there's just a lot of collaboration with each other. Uh, you got to work it, well with others. Mm-hmm, when it comes to arranging uh-huh. everything from meals to um, – there's so many details to communicate about living that way and yeah. um, living relatively close together. But resilience is definitely high on the list, being able to um, adapt well. And I think it's a great place to learn um, better better boundaries and, self- and time management. And, yeah. you know, so I need to go tend to my firewood. I need to get my, my work done. I need to make sure. There, there's I'm something fed. attractive about always having a task at hand. Mm. And, and when you don't have as much time yeah. sitting around and scrolling your phone and mm-hmm. so forth, mm-hmm. like when we go camping. Yes, yeah. I mean, I, I would joke sometimes and that my experience at Quail Springs is like a one large camping trip that yeah. just never ended. And uh, I know that's, that that's that, attractive for a lot of exactly, people. Exactly, but I know it's a disservice to you know to folks it's more than staying that, there, yeah. staying there for you know for many many years. But there's the, the saying that is, is to allude to the best parts of camping. You know, yes, it's challenging, but you're, you're faced with yourself in ways mm-hmm. that you're not in a distracted environment. So yeah. you're faced so with Aristotelian man versus nature. Yeah, a little bit. I'd say so. I, I, you know, I think the, the experience is, um, it, it asks you to, um, to know what to do with yourself when mm-hmm. you don't have the options that we have in a well-connected on-grid environment. Mm. Yeah. So uh, we're we're it's so easy to stop whatever you're doing and do something else mm-hmm. uh, at Quail Springs and in that rural environment. Uh, you spend more time with everything asks you to to spend more time with it from conversations. To um, to working with plants and the animals, they're just there's a I think that the binding force is, is the land, and that people speak of that often is this um, uh, this call to land. What is what is, mm-hmm. and I think we a can, literal grounding, a literal grounding. Mm-hmm. I think we can all experience that everywhere we are. Mm-hmm. You know, it is possible. Uh, I just think that in a world that is increasingly filled with things of distraction it makes it easier to find yeah there's also the sorting that goes on when you have all your all the media sources and distractions that confirm your biases and so forth and Mm. we live in our little bubbles and then when you're confronted with the elements there's no room for that Mm. it's just it's an equality of inputs and experience 
Well, I think you were going to bring up the the winter earlier. Yeah, snow. And that was it. Certainly was a confronted with the elements kind of winter. Yeah. Well, wait, wait. First, uh, the elevation there is what, like four thousand or so. We're about thirty five hundred. Thirty five hundred. So you're definitely in the snow zone. Mm -hmm. Mm. We get snow several times a year. Um, Yeah. But we did get a snow in February. That was the biggest that Jan and Brenton had ever seen in their time. And the, then the, the snow melts pretty really quickly, but there were just rivulets melts, running down yeah. all the ridges. And yeah. It was really spectacular. I'll bet it was. I mean, you just take desert environments and add water, and it's just magical. Yeah. 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 As if they're not magical enough. And then yeah. it's even glistening and so beautiful. It was, yeah. My favorite place like that is Aravipa Canyon. Do you, have you ever heard mm-hmm. of Aravipa Canyon? It's in near <clears throat> Klondike, Arizona which is like Cochise County or the next county up. But mm. it's a, it isn't even like a year-round stream, but it goes into this 14-mile-long canyon with these just beautiful red sandstone walls. And then it just burbles up. And all of a sudden, it's like a beautiful stream, like really, you know, flows heavy mm. and con- consistently. And then it just peters out into the sand on the other side. So it just comes out of nowhere and goes back into nowhere. Mm. And in in between, it's just incredibly magical. And uh, I don't know if it was the, the Indians tribe there. I don't want to say Tahona Dotham because I probably mispronouncing it horribly. But they had all their bean and squash and cornfields in those canyons mm. and dwellings up in the walls and that when you go in there just you can just feel the connection that they must have felt and what a refuge it was it was really aravipa canyon mm. it's not on everyone's list of places to go but it should be wow. yeah adding it to the list bakersfield yeah <laughs> so what was the you know just being in close quarters and just food is you're not just going to run out for a gallon of milk. <laughs> you know, what is that? How does that, how did everybody adapt? Because well, you were, you were holed up for quite a while, right? Oh, this winter? Unknown caller. There were several, um, I think after two storms that happened this winter, uh, every highway for us to get in and out, which is four different ways, was closed. Mm-hmm. Um, but we, we're usually pretty set with food. We do a once a month pickup from the Isla Vista food co-op. Okay. And then we have a, a food storage, um, shipping container that has three feet of cob on the front and solar panels on the top, um, that keeps our food at a, at a good temperature. So as far as food goes, we were pretty good and we don't have to run out for milk because yeah, of the fat of the land. Yeah, you get it right off the goats, yeah. Um, but it certainly was, um, a bit more extreme than usual in thinking of what what we might need to prepare. Um, we do use propane for some things, so thankfully we had gotten a propane tank refill at the perfect oh, so time. So typically you're not cooking with propane or gas. Um, so there's several fire. different um, situations, but we are, in our commons kitchen we have a, a barrel oven that's wood fired. Okay. It's an earthen built oven, and then. Um, so there's several small stoves that we have that are that use propane, um, and then propane also runs our generator, which is a backup to making sure that the solar system, if the solar system gets below a certain charge, mm-hmm. then the generator will kick, will kick on. Okay. So it's pretty important that we have um, propane, which 
I, I'm trying to be open about because propane can be like the dirty little secret of many yeah. um, off-grid communities and permaculture communities. But yeah. we do use it, and we got a refill just in time. Oh yeah, you yeah, that's right. Because that's got trucks got to come out there. Mm-hmm. You're not using five gallon bottles from like some camp store or something, mm-hmm. yeah. Right. Um, but we we were pretty set with food. We, um, you know, everybody What's gets a typical out there. Meal after like what it was. Tell me about a day oh. there. Just a day in the, the eating and so forth. Yeah, I'm curious. Oh, the the meals are so good at Cross mm-hmm. Springs. I think yeah. I. I and I I can say this because I love my mom so much and everyone who's had her food knows that she is an excellent cook. Yeah. But I don't think I've ever eaten as well as I have in you know in my time at, living at Quell Springs. It's just just consistently good food made by others or you know we take turns cooking. Um you're you're bringing together so many different backgrounds. I mean, we have, mm-hmm. we have currently the staff, we have people who have Hispanic backgrounds. Um, one of our staff members has a Bosnian background. A what? Bo- uh, Bo- Bosnian. So Chinese. Oh, okay. Chinese background. I have an Indian background. And it's not that our cuisines are necessarily tied to our backgrounds, but we definitely celebrate when we mm-hmm. bring in some of those traditional flavors. I think one of my favorite things that, you ever cooked, Alex, was um, Stampot from Netherlands. Uh, What's that? Uh, it's, a, it's kind of a staple of the Netherlands, which is where my mom is from. Mm-hmm. And it's um, potatoes and kale mashed together. And it's often oh. eaten with um, with sausages and little pickles and mustard. Mm-hmm. I so, think I know what you're talking about. My so family's... Um, it's very simple, journey. but I, I couldn't believe what a hit it yeah. was. And what were those little donut cookies that you put on top of your coffee to soften them up? Oh, they're crunchy stro- on one side. Strope waffle. Mm-hmm. Do you ever make those? I don't. No. <laughs> that sounds. I don't know why I'm hungry for that all of a sudden. <laughs> it's kind of nice though that um, airlines have started giving them as snacks. Yeah, it's like a really good airplane snack. Yeah, I just remember when I lived in England and would go over to Amsterdam or the Netherlands visit friends that just sitting in a cafe with a hot chocolate. Mm. With a waffle on top. Right, just let it melt. Yeah. You know, they're delicious. And they stay, because they stay crunchy on one side and then they get soft on the other. It's just an amazing texture. So I know. Just, it's yeah. an incredible invention. Yeah. I think take it's one of those things that making it would be probably pretty intensive and it's just so yeah. much nicer to I buy it. I thought it was like just a batter and then they use like an oven or a, like an iron to Stamp it, I thought. I guess. Well, there's a lot of things in Dutch cuisine. There's so many specific little things that have their own skillets and presses, and yeah, you need that specific stroopwafel press. Yeah, that's very true. My mom has some hanging up in her house. Yeah, we had all a bunch of those. I'm not sure why my mom loved to cook. She watched all the cooking shows, and we had amazing. At my father was a master gardener. So we just ate like kings, mm. even though we were very poor. But she had all those gadgets. She loved those uh, Abel Skeever little presses and stuff yeah. and little donut extruders and all kinds of fun stuff. Mm. It's interesting you say that in terms of eating like kings. I think that's one of the experiences mm-hmm. of being in such close relation. So I think what stands out when you're eating the food that you're growing uh, is mm-hmm. you have a relationship with the food that makes it shine in ways that... Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, every meal feels like a yeah, celebration. It does, yeah. So 
so there the the cool thing about living there is you have to be inventive because you also have to deal with what is growing in the desert. So, mm. you know, um, a classical North Indian dish is sag paneer and sag. Uh-huh. Is a pre- oh, so you're a vegetarian, not a vegan. I'm a vegetarian. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it would make uh, people. I was going to say that's... but it's it's a challenge because the eggs and the milk and oh are yeah, such staples. oh my god, um, especially in the winter when you I could handle being a vegetarian, that. but being a vegan in a situation where you got all that goat milk and <laughs> and chickens and so forth, that's tough. <laughs> I mean, people people have made made life good at Quill Springs mm-hmm. with all yeah. kinds of dietary restrictions, and that's part of the living in community is making mm-hmm. sure there's something for everyone to eat, mm-hmm. yeah. um, and making sure it's tasty. So our our current um, elder on this on site, Sue Blackshear, who is an artist, I definitely recommend checking her artwork out. Um, Sue Blackshear. Uh-huh, SueBlackshear.com is her mm, website. I think so. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Beautiful paintings of uh, of our region of Kuyama Valley, and um, I'm lucky to have one of her paintings. But she loves paneer, so mm. um, you know. Whenever we have, can a, you describe it? It's like a, it's a soft cheese that's it's fresh washed. Fresh, it's, yeah, fr- and we we curdle it and then press it, and so it's kind of a farmer's cheese except pressed, yeah. and uh, the whey is pressed out uh, from the from the milk. Mm-hmm. And you're left with kind of a hard hard cottage cheese. Yeah. And um, we we sort of lightly lightly fry it and mix that. So sag is a very is a type of spinach or a group of group of spinach. We don't spinach sometimes grows, but not as heartily and reliably as chard at yeah. Quail Springs. And so we just started making chard paneer instead of sog paneer. Sure. And it's delicious. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You yeah. just, it's like you have to, you kind of adjust the cuisine to what grows out there. And yeah. all of us do that in our own ways with whatever recipes we're bringing. But yes, the food is, I mean, from breakfast to dinner, sometimes we joke because you don't pull out your wallet for anything. So if, if you don't leave the site for a couple of weeks, you realize you you haven't opened your wallet mm-hmm. once and you forget you have a wallet you or where it is. You forget you have yeah. you know a credit card or a cash and you just it's it's quite an amazing human experience that Man. many of us don't have. All right, I'm I'm packing <laughs> up. Okay. <laughs> and so you're you know one day I I would joke and I still joke every time I'm eating a meal here meal meal at Quail Springs. You have this beautiful salad freshly picked from the garden with. With um, you know maybe artichoke hearts or edible flowers, edible flowers mm. and a special dressing, yeah, mm-hmm. nasturtiums and um, shredded beets and uh, I don't know, I, like I, there's so many. It just looks with with a freshly poached egg on top, and mm. uh, you know you sit there. This is just a typical breakfast, and suddenly I just have this urge to price it. You know, because oh, out, out in Ojai. Ashwin's favorite game. Twenty twenty two dollars. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's like, whoa, don't forget the farm fresh egg, it's an extra three dollars. Yeah. <laughs> it's I just a fun game. Definitely, definitely <laughs> appreciate that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, you do live like kings. Mm-hmm. And what is uh you know, then you go out and you've got your set of chores. Does everybody have a specialty? Or is it well, just what needs doing? Folks on staff are we're all um directors of our role. So there's the folks who are on the farm team um, have chores, and other folks uh, are engaged in those as well, like 
anyone can be on the milking rotation. Mm-hmm. And, um, so a typical day, it kind of depends on the person, but there's, there are the morning tasks. So for the farm, it's let the chickens out, milk the goats, yeah. um, water, uh, water through irrigation, which in the summer is quite, quite a task and can't be forgotten for any rounds. And, yeah. um, and Tuesdays are big meeting day. So then anyone who's on the land comes to the meeting that we call town hall. Nice. And, um, after town hall is business circle, which is our, our meeting for staff members and for the nonprofit. Yeah. And so, um, when Ashwin talked, you said the operating budget is like per person is just ridiculously low. Like however yeah, many our, people, you have four, like 40 people through the course of a year that are basically coming and going and living off the, off the organization and it's like $40,000 or something. No, 400,000. 400, for, for a large. So like less than $10,000 each for a resident, for somebody to live there for a year. That's, that was the math I remember. Yeah. yeah. Well, life is quite different when it's, when not everybody needs to own. And and when it's collective. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's collective. And, and one of the things that is part of our advocacy work is the earthen building and earthen shelters. And so we, we have built our own homes on the land and yeah. not, not me personally, but groups before me mm-hmm. and, uh, we inhabit them and there's no rent to speak of, but no. having a house is part of the compensation. Of Who the bought the land in the first place and how many acres? It's quite, quite big, right? Several 450. hundred acres. Mm-hmm. 450. So two thirds of a square mile. So That's through a capital campaign, the nonprofit bought, com- completed buying the land in 2018. Okay. Mm-hmm. Was started in two thousand four. Mm-hmm. So the capital campaign was involved the help of you know, thousands However of people. However many people, mm-hmm. yeah. So, what was I going back to? Just the ability uh, to live so close to the land, and it's yeah. not like people need much, much less than they than they think. Yeah, but we, do. you know, and, and the, the the challenge of a of living today is that the economy is growing at a rate that it makes it hard for us to keep up. So yeah. there are there are real challenges of real costs that, um, you know, at the Ojai Rotary Club, I mentioned, you know, we're, we didn't anticipate that our washing machine would break. Yeah. Uh, there was a lady that offered. Yeah, yeah it was amazing. Mm-hmm. And there, Did you get it? Did yes. You? Yeah. We, oh, we, wow. We good. I'm it. glad. Uh, thank you to the Ojai Rotary Club for mm-hmm. the support. Because it's it's these kind of, these kind of things that um, – the, the costs are increasing at a rate that a small nonprofit and a land based mm-hmm. organization can't necessarily keep up as rapidly. Yeah, you can't scale up in that way. No, mm. no, we can't. And it's also not our intention. <laughs> so that's a, that's an interesting aspect of, of being an organization that is not about, um, uh, creating, uh, products mm-hmm. in, in a, um, in a way that increases, uh, how would I put it? Um, growth, growth. Path. Yeah, growth. Exactly. Growth mindset. Growth mindset. Mm-hmm. Where it's like, how can we? How do we value uh, restoration work? Mm-hmm. You know that. That's, well, I imagine you value it through the so education courses. And exactly. Mm-hmm. So that's right. that's how we end up doing that yeah. is through education and through grants is, is finding ways to value that work. And that's life changing for people. I mean, for folks who take our permaculture design course, they, they really do share that getting back to those basics and focusing, even observing through the, doing the design project for the course and observing their own 
places that they live and noticing water and in re- doing more research about the water, about the plants that grow there. It really does shift people's perspective and lives in a mm-hmm. way that, so that's sort of an ethic to us. It's very important and carries over through that education to be shared. So it's really, yeah. it's really, really uh, powerful to hear that feedback come from the courses and the participants. And how do people access those? You said you have a YouTube channel, but is there a preferred yeah. access method for seminars and webinars and mm-hmm. workshops and field well, we have trips a YouTube and- channel and, and we have an Instagram account. Um, but for our courses, those run, they have a specific start time and end time. And uh, both our permaculture design course and our natural building course run for six months. And they're yeah, I imagine guided. the natural building courses, are pe- people are very committed to that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they do also a project yeah. in that course. And so, I'm, I'm curious about the materials. Is everything sufficient in itself? Do you have to, like, wash the sand or get it from special deposits or... You know, because all dirt is not created equal. Right. It can be necessary to wash sand. Um, there actually used to be uh, an area near Quail Springs that that would wash the sand uh, for us, but they end up closing down. Um, and that was before our times when yeah. more building was happening. But it can be beneficial to, to wash the sand and to kind of clean it so up. It, uh, so it's, it takes the mortar or the cement better. Because mm-hmm. there's, there's so many different... When we say sand, that's it varies depending on where you are. Yeah. Well, I've heard the sand shortage because right. we think of there being Plenty. sand everywhere, but no, they mm-hmm. have to import it from like Nigeria and, and there's different shapes South of sand. Africa mm-hmm. and yeah, I mean like the diatomaceous earth is like the most valuable because mm-hmm. because it takes the whatever materials better. It's more sturdy. Right, the but square yeah. sand is better for building than round, which round is more ocean and uh, yeah, riverbed. Rolled. And that's mm-hmm. better for like paving projects and stuff, right? Or I don't remember. I, I've heard something about it that was interesting to me, but I don't remember now. There's even sand mafias. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. There's gangs There's a great of on that, uh, 99% Invisible. There are, I think, two. Oh, yeah. Roman Mars. I love that guy. Two um, episodes about the sand shortage. I got to go check that out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's uh, interesting stuff people don't think about. But when you're, right. when you're right up on it in the land like that, you don't have a choice. Mm-hmm. But it's also, it's necessary for glass and concrete, which with all the building happening ongoingly in the world, it really perpetuates the sand shortage. Yeah. Interesting. So what is the, you know, the, are you just continually building because you're doing these seminars and projects? So when the people come out to do a building workshop, you're actually building something, right? In the past, mm-hmm. we're, we're yeah. not currently building, but that's how many of the structures were built at Quail Springs was um, folks would come out for a workshop and they would learn hands-on how to create something. Yeah, um, this like is a two-week uh, span. Read, uh, Tom Sawyer. Mark Twain, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, with the paint, painting painting of the fence. Mm. So you're getting the people to come out and do all the labor like, and learn. Yeah, yeah. Well, the key is just to make sure that it's uh, kind of learned by doing. Exa- you know, of course, education. But I think that's a great model. Yeah. No, I, I. I mean, that's what I was craving. I. I. I feel like that's the kind of work or learning that I didn't uh-huh. get much of. Um, yeah, sure. Everything just gets so abstract. Yes. Now you're mm. now I um what what's your background again? I mean Well, I um I know I've a little of Ashton. been a farmer and a landscaper mostly in life. Um 
I went to school for culinary arts and oh, good for you. pretty quickly found out that I didn't like to be inside as much as that required and didn't want to work all the holidays and also be paid relatively poorly. So yeah. it's a um, major commitment to go it's a into huge commitment. restaurant work. So then I, I started woofing and, and I had done some private chefing and I cooked on some boats in, in Maine. And, um, is that where you're from, Maine? I'm from Maryland. Maryland. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, there's great cuisine there. Mm, crabs and crabs, Chesapeake yeah. Bay. Mm-hmm. But I, I got into woofing because I wanted to experience what it was like to grow food and to be yeah. outside. So then I had I did farming internships and eventually had my own farm in uh, western Massachusetts and also had oh, a landscaping yeah. business. P- Pittsfield? Close to Pittsfield. Mm-hmm, the Berkshires, yeah. Uh, Lennox is like the Ojai of the East Coast. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, That's there's true. like the um, Shakespeare and Company and, and the Tanglewood. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so much to do in the Berkshires. Yeah, it's actually mm-hmm. quite gorgeous there. Mm-hmm. Um, I have so many friends there, and I'm hearing about spring. It's a it's a different kind of spring. Oh, you know, my everybody goodness, so it bursts ready. bursts right from one day to the next. You can feel it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So I've done I've done a lot of um, landscaping and garden maintenance and garden installs and so good and then, good experience for. This job now. Now you're a co-director with uh, mm-hmm. Ashley. So I came to Quail Springs as the livestock director um, and first was in that role for six months. And then we transitioned to executive directors at the same time. So we are co-executive directors. And Is that because you got a division of duties? We do. Um, we do. Actually, co-executive directors is kind of a growing trend in the nonprofit world hmm. because it's a lot to hold. And um so we, there are some overlaps that we have, but we do have sort of distinct duties and, mm. um, but really collaborate a lot on brainstorming and thinking things through, but we do quite distinct things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And your background, Ashwin, in German literature, I just find that fascinating. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I do too. <laughs> and you went to Syracuse? <laughs> what was that? You went to, uh, Syracuse? Um, I- well, uh, no, I, my my studies were at UC Berkeley, and okay. then I taught at Hobart and William Smith Colleges for six mm. years in media studies and German studies. Uh, and then, yeah, and then, um, you know, the, the world of academia has its challenges, and it wasn't the kind of challenge that I felt like I could withstand yeah. lifelong. Now, you're there to write a novel. Is that the, I mean, most most professors are Yeah, you write novelists. books. Yeah, oh. I don't know about if most professors are novelists, but they do have to complete a book project often. Yeah, um, publish or perish. Yes, publish or perish. <laughs> uh, and I, you know, I enjoy writing. I enjoyed um, the work that I did. You have a Bildungsroman on, in, in I, process? But, but that's the thing is I, I realize that I I don't like to write about writing. I like to write. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, moving into a new phase of life where... Uh, my free time feels really distinct from my work, mm-hmm. and in my free time, I can read and write with leisure rather than pressure. And I yeah, what, yeah, are, you, so what are you reading? Uh, right now, I just started a book called Wolf Totem, and honestly, mm-hmm. I'm um, forgetting the name of the author. Um, it was gifted to me so by Native American. No, no, it's actually a Chinese uh, novel oh, about nice. the wolves in the steppes of Mongolia, mm-hmm. and uh, it was gifted to me by our natural building director, who said that mm-hmm. uh, who read some of my writing 
and said that I would really appreciate it. So I just started, so I'm a, like a page in, so I yeah. can't really speak to it. I, but I, was, I am starting, starting. I'm trying to read more fiction. I read a lot of nonfiction. You can see I've got stacks of books everywhere. Yeah. I'm so far behind. Well, I'd recommend, I just finished um, Passing by Nella Larson, and I did mention that too. Oh, is Alex that, that about the the one they made a movie about, the ladies in the 20s, one of who passes for white? The, yes. Oh, I didn't yeah. know there was a movie about it. Yeah, um, with Ruth Nega and... I'm going to blank on her name, Carmen Ojoa. But it's supposed to be really good. When did the movie come out? Recently? Yeah. Oh. Oh, wow. Wow. Very timely then that I read it. I didn't know that the film was. I love reading a book and seeing the adaptation. That's one of my, I taught a course on that. It's one of my favorite things to do. Yeah. What's some, what's, what are some good adaptations? Oh, um, besides adaptation. That was a great movie. Yes. Anything with Charlie Kaufman is great. Well, um, I like uh, the Enigma of Casper Hauser, which is oh, was that uh, that boy Werner, that just Werner, showed up in the yeah. middle of nowhere? Uh-huh, <laughs> the Werner Herzog film. Um, I really love that one. Uh, let's see, Werner Herzog. <laughs> she should get him on the podcast. Um, oh, that'd be a hit. Just to do the voice. <laughs> yeah, just the voice. Ask him anything. <laughs> yeah, he'll come. He'll come up with an answer. I read a speaking of rural life that documentary he made about this village in Siberia. Happy people. Happy people. So I love that. It is so good. I learned about no, uh, I about dogs in that film that I use all the time because this guy, his dog would circle back from his camp and eat the sables out of his traps. Mm. So And he would punish the dog to no avail. So he hatched upon the plan to set up a deadfall on the near the trap so when the dog would go yank the sable carcass out of there the log would fall on his head and conk him not even enough to really hurt him just enough to get his attention so he said you know the dog should fear the the trap not the not Mm. the not the owner Mm -hmm. and i was like okay good you want to remove yourself from the resentment of the lesson Mm -hmm. yeah i love that movie yeah i I will say that it's important that with any viewing of any Werner Herzog film that you understand or one understands that half of it will be fictionalized. Yeah. Oh, for the <laughs> or story. Sto- story. Um, yeah, or, or heavily, heavily fictionalized, but has a sheen of documentary film. Yeah. So even... Um, Agira is definitely that. Agira yeah. Or, or what's, the yeah, Wrath of God. God. Or what's the one that... Uh, Fitzcarraldo. Oh, the one in the f- caves of France. Oh, oh a Cave yeah. of Forgotten Dreams. Cave of Forgotten yeah. Dreams. I mean, mm-hmm. it's an incredible film, but um, many of the facts are fabricated. Oh. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a... There's a f- a, a short film called Jagmandir that I was doing some research on for a while, which is about a temple in India and a castle in India sort of, that is supposedly sinking into into the lake. And that that's the whole premise of the film, which is made into a documentary. But uh, there's no there's no um, palace sinking into the lake. That's a complete wow. fabrication. So he's using like an allegory. Uh, it could be read as that, but I don't yeah. think he intends it as that. I think it's more... Oh, he wants people to think there actually is this place, yeah. and he's just using mm. it as a device. It's Exactly. It's it's a storytelling mm. device to catch to catch interest and to... Oh, wow. That's but not I think fair. That's, it's not fair, but it's also brilliant, you know? Yeah. It's because a lot of people are caught 
by the magic of the storyteller. Yeah. Mm. Interesting. Do you guys do, tell stories around the evening bonfires and stuff? A lot. Sometimes, yeah. We <laughs> yeah. had a really good specific storytelling night that was um, that is sort of seared into my memory. And I, I learned a lot of things about people that evening yeah. around the campfire that were pretty entertaining. Nice. But and we, yeah, we tell a lot of stories. There's a lot of very funny people at Quail Springs. Yeah. And sort of theatrical and we sing together. We'll actually be singing at the uh, farmer's market today as a group. We have a, a small um, high desert choir called the Muddy Daughters. The Muddy Daughters. Muddy. Oh, Muddy Daughters. Muddy. Okay, that makes much more sense. <laughs> yeah, the Muddy Daughters would be a little bit uh, li- less ironic. off-brand. But yeah. um, we, uh, yeah, we'll be singing tonight at 6. And we do a lot of those kinds of – we're kind of careful about the, having technology in the commons areas. Mm-hmm. So – um, there's a lot of interaction and communication at dinner and a lot of laughing and storytelling. Yeah. Well, I know I grew up with a lot of Amish people and, you know, Rumspriga, where they go out into the world. And mm-hmm. it's fun when you live near there because you get to see it happening. Yeah. <laughs> but I won't get too deep into it, but mm. they all go back. Mm. Every one of them. That sense of community is so strong. And you see it all the time. Like the example I use is that wonderful book about the Comanche nation, the summer moon. Or, and they talk about Cynthia Ann Parker was abducted when she was nine years old. Mm. And then when she was in her 30s, 34, 35, she was abducted back to the Texans and reunited with her family and so forth. But she married a chief and she had two sons and she had her little baby daughter with her prairie flower and she died of heartbreak within like just months she went from this vibrant you know leader of her people even though she was white she was totally accepted in fact the comanches had to bring in outside women because they spent so much time on horseback their pelvises would where they couldn't give birth anymore it was like really interesting phenomenon that happened when they became horse culture Mm. And the same thing, like Benjamin Franklin's autobiography talked about something, a friend of his who had a young Indian boy as an apprentice in a shop and talked, took him in and treated him like family. And then as soon as the guy's back was turned, he ran off. Mm. <laughs> and he said, like, that's, he's was curious about why is it is something as soon as they have a chance to take a ramble, we never hear from them again. And it's because of community. Community that's why. ties are strong. Yeah. I just love that benjamin franklin story because he got it he understood why Mm, that fabric of life is is yeah it's a hard hard life but it's irreplaceable Mm. Mm -hmm. i felt that with the amish Mm. because it was not it didn't look fun i mean we worked with them all the time and we'd sell them hay and so forth Mm -hmm. and just the amount of work that goes into that life and why they would do that and Mm. And they they do they seem happy, mm-hmm. yeah. So favorite authors, while well, we're making recommendations, because I'm definitely curious to hear yours because I'm a big Robert Musil fan. Mm-hmm. So German, uh, is a German author is that your favorite? Or you know, I actually really don't like that question <laughs> because <laughs> it's not about that. Because it's the tr- the false choices. Yeah, or or. I, like I'll love one book by an author, but not the other book, which is mm-hmm. also 
my fear as a non-published author mm-hmm. <laughs> is, oh, I might write one good thing and then other things are just terrible. Um, sophomore slump. Yeah, which is also <laughs> fine. You know, yeah. it's life. Uh, but I do, I'd say a book that, that really moved me, uh, and an author whose work generally moves me is, uh, German author Jenny Erpenbeck. Uh, hmm. E and last, last, uh, you know, German, uh, E-R-P-E-N-B-E-C-K. And, um, the book translated to English called, uh, Visitation. And, uh, I don't know. I found, I found the, the characterization of a house as a main character hmm. through, through which many different families and, uh, in, from a historical lens, families that would not have been wanting to be in the same space, um, mm. moving into the same house, success, succeeding each other. Uh, with, well, that's a great device. Yeah, I see how that device. would work. Yeah. And with one, with, uh, with one main character as, a, as, as kind of the magical um, binder, which was a gardener who lived through every family that lived through that house, even though the time frame wouldn't have allowed necessarily the gardener to live that long through throughout yeah. that period. Um, but the house itself has this uh, important character. It's 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 a it the, and the book opens up in geological time. You're you're in a you're yeah, deep 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 time. time. Yeah, in a different different mm. space. Nice mm. and hmm. I'm not sure if I have um, sort of author uh, alliance. I just like to skip around between fiction and nonfiction and cover a lot of different topics. I'm trying to think of what. I think you're reading it now. The last book that I couldn't stop talking about was um, Behind the Beautiful Forevers. Yes. Yeah. Is that mm-hmm. you're reading it? Mm-hmm. Um, I can't think of the author's name right now. Catherine Boo. Catherine Boo, yes. Oh, yes, yes, yes. yes. She writes about oh, no, poverty no. In, in the U.S. and then went yeah. married an Indian man and went to India and wrote about it. Yeah, she writes for the New Yorker. Her oh, such a powerful book. And the characters, um, I, I was so invested in their lives in such a, powerful way and i was really glad that, that i didn't read didn't skip ahead and read the author's note until the end mm. um because i i was reading it as if it was fiction but the whole book is non-fiction and it's recreated from all these from her living among these folks and um interviewing them and recreating their lives nice that sound, does sound great mm-hmm. it's terrifying too it's to, to know that this is in our in our world it's horrific yeah. mm-hmm. it's just heartbreaking and just captures so much of, of the human condition through people whose lives are so different from mine, but like the, the feelings and their kind of inner lives that she recreates through having had so many conversations yeah. with them are really... Well, the best journalists, and she is a journalist, mm-hmm. they capture the interiority mm-hmm. of a character, of a person, which is very hard to do. I think that's one of the reasons why Werner Herzog, and I don't really know that much about his process, but why he may take some liberties, because... It's a it's a way to do that. Mm. Like these cavemen, like what was going on in their minds? I mean, they were they lived and died and loved and mm-hmm. ate and danced and sang and mm. yeah, it's it's just this human tapestry. Mm. Well, I have one uh, Sapiens, of course. I mean, I read those mm. several years ago, but Homo Deus and Twenty One Rules for the Twenty First Century or something, ah. but. He's a synthesizer of vast amounts of data, 
And then the other one, of course, nonfiction, taken me almost three or four years to read this book, is Energy and Civilization, mm. Vashlov Shmiel. And he writes these great books about explaining, you know, all the background of the hum of everything that goes on beneath us. But just to hear, that's where I was he- reading or hearing something about him talking about the sand shortage, but how much energy it takes for, you know, civilization and how much it used to compared to now and the forests and the coal mines and, you know, the making of steel and the coke mm. that they use to fuel the ovens and the oh, temperatures. It's incredible. Whenever I throw a, two, a, a paper clip away, I just think of everything that went into how creating much went that. Into little, that yeah. what this, what's the book that there's a book that's just making its way through Quail Springs, the, um, the Dawn of... The Dawn of Everything. Oh, yeah. That's a big one that's been passing around. David Graeber and uh, another co-author. I'll I'll put it in notes. But that's another kind of thick. Yeah. Okay. Anything else you want to talk about? Quail Springs or um, anything coming up that you can promote or, you know, got any shout outs? Sure. Well, if folks want to come see Quail Springs, uh, the best way to do that is to look at the Visit Us page on our website, which is quailsprings.org. And we we have days once a month that are farm tours, so folks can come. They're sort of escorted in and um, get to see the farm, get to see some some of the structures, um, are fed one of these lunches that we can't stop Mm -hmm. talking about, and uh, hear some singing from the Muddy Daughters, get to just... (laughs) Have it's a really it's a very connective and and powerful experience both for people who come and for us living on the land so that's um, by donation and then our courses are something to take a look at um, the PD the permaculture design course launches on um, May twentieth okay and then the natural building course on June fifteenth so those are also on the website and um, what else do we have coming up we. Well, we, we're going to be at Ojai Farmer's Market today for their Ojai Earth Day. Oh, wait, uh, Thursday Farmer's Market. Isn't today Thursday? Yeah. yeah. But is it? Well, the day that this comes out won't necessarily be oh, Thursday. Got it. But... Yeah. Uh, well, we'll what, when, do, when do you think this will be? Uh, uh, probably two weeks. In two weeks. Yeah. So well, Santa Barbara Earth yeah. Day will be passed. We'll be there. Yeah. Um, there's just so many spring events happening, but our big... Um, our big push this time of year is getting ready to welcome guests through our farm tours and then getting our programs up and running. So those are two really good ways to stay up to date with what we're doing. And yeah. um, we have an e-newsletter that's on our website. And we have two informational uh, webinars coming up as well. So we um, govern ourselves by this um, non-hierarchical structure called sociocracy. So we'll be doing one webinar about that on April 27th. Oh, wow. This is your internal processes. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which then, could be a whole other... Is this a deliberate uh, structure? Is this, or is there some history to this? Or you work... Is it your... It was, well, it was created in the Netherlands, and um, mm. and Quail Springs transitioned about three and a half years ago. So we've been improving our processes that way. And sociocracy is really... It's a growing movement, so it's, it has yeah, a lot I've never, of... I'm hearing about it for the first time. Mm. Um and we we share a little bit about that process in our uh, permaculture design course. So we yeah. wanted to share more with people because there's there's a lot of questions from folks that we get through Instagram and Facebook of how we how we structure things in the community, how we govern ourselves. Yeah. So we have made uh, great strides through sociocracy. So we wanted to share more about that. So that's April 27th, and then we'll be doing another webinar in early. 
May. Um, and that one is focused on um, kind of finding one's roots in, in the world of permaculture. So permaculture is is a design science that was kind of originated, quote unquote, by uh, Bill Mollison, Bill Mollison and, and David Holgram, mm-hmm. um, who are from Australia, but. The actual roots of permaculture are far, are far, far deeper. They're in um, indigenous and ancestral cultures all over the world, and so we're we as as an organization that that deals with permaculture on a regular basis. We are also actively critiquing uh, the historical benefit, the people who benefit most from this movement, and in terms of land access and monetary access, and so what. We are trying to do also within our permaculture work is to make sure that more people have access to this education, environmental education. And so our three panelists on that webinar are people who are deeply involved with permaculture, but who are from very different backgrounds and who yeah. weave in their their histories into the work of permaculture. So the people are um, uh, Abudu Nininger, who is a... Uh, he works in Ojai, actually, at Mama Tree Farm, mm-hmm. and uh, that's down in that's up, upper, upper Ojai. Upper mm-hmm. Ojai, um, a, a great partner of ours, uh, Mama Tree, and uh, Jeffrey Rydell, who's also um, works at Mama Tree, and he's a lead instructor for actually for online PDC, whose um, origins are in Austria, and Abudu's origins are in Ghana, and um, Diego Cordero. Diego Cordero. Diego Cordero, who's mm-hmm. um, uh, he is a, the one of the environmental directors at the Santinez Shumash Environmental Office, Psycho, and uh, he took a PDC at Quail Springs. I think uh, in twenty sixteen or twenty eighteen. Yeah, yeah. So, so he'll be sharing about native plants and his involvement with those. Wow, you guys are keeping busy. Yes, we sure do. Isn't all singing and dancing the knees? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thanks, Alex. Thanks, Ashwin. Thank Thank you. you. Hey, everyone. Brett Bradigan here, just thinking out loud. Now, uh, the conversation, as you see, went in a bunch of different directions. And we kept coming back to that sense of community and commonality that takes place in these group living situations. And in many cases, that collective sense of identity is very powerful, keeps people connected to the land and to each other. Uh, It can be difficult. I don't know if anybody's familiar with um, the writer, and he lives in Montecito. He's got the wild hair. Uh, He wrote a book about a group of, this is back in the 70s, I think, a utopian community they started in Alaska, and it ended up being just a crazy series of misadventures. But it's a very um, interesting way to delve into human character, nature, how people relate to each other, and uh, it's really this this uh, ancient. I mean, we are a social species who has lived together in bands since the beginning like uh, the lady I just had on Beth Pratt talking about mountain lions and how they spend as little time 
together as possible and what solitary beasts they are. And we're just the opposite. We are not solitary creatures. We rely on each other in interesting ways. It's uh, just really one of the ways that we connect to history is through the activities that we have together. I know I've talked about the French Annalistas, because history before used to just be the stories of great men. And the Annalistas in the 1920s, I believe, these French historians, or the school of French history, where they started working with excavations of villages throughout the medieval period and the Dark Ages and beyond, and what people ate and when they ate and their daily routines and how much work it took and how many calories uh, it needed to sustain them. And it seems very quotidian, but when you start connecting to deep time, as we talked about with Ashwin and Alex, it becomes something different. You begin to reflect that this is who we are and who we always have been. Uh, in any event, I'm still trying to think of that author's name. Goodness gracious, just hold on with me. I'm going to look it up right now because uh, he's just so, such a... We, we actually, Kit Stoltz did a uh, interview with him. And uh, I just like, oh yeah, T.C. Boyle. Thomas Cortegesson Boyle. Really um, fascinating author. And the material that he mines about humans and put together and how we relate and don't relate and all the rest of that is just highly recommended in any event that's it for this episode of Ojai Talk of the Town we'll keep an ear out